Good morning, Restoration Church. If you've got your Bibles with you, you can open them up to Acts chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 17 uh, through 42 uh, this morning, and so we'll try to make uh, our way through this and see what God would have for us this morning. Um, we're, again, excited to have you, and then we're just going to continue our work in getting through uh, the book of Acts. And so this morning we'll be in Acts uh, 5, verses 17 through 42. The following shared in a publication called Our Daily Bread. It says as follows, In ancient Rome, crowds by the tens of thousands would gather in the Colosseum to watch as Christians were torn apart by wild animals. Paul Rader, commenting on his visit to this famous landmark, said, I stood uncovered to the heavens above, where he sits, for whom they gladly died, and asked myself, would I, could I die for him tonight to get this gospel to the ends of the earth? Rader continued, I prayed most fervently in that Roman arena for the spirit of a martyr and for the working of the Holy Spirit in my heart, as he worked in Paul's heart, when he brought him on his handcuffed way to Rome. Those early Christians, Rader goes on to say, lived on the threshold of heaven, Within a heartbeat of home, no possessions to hold them back. One of the ongoing questions we are confronted with in our study of the book of Acts, and really most of the New Testament and parts of the Old, is this. Are we prepared for suffering well under persecution when and if we are confronted by it? As we unpack Acts 5, 17 through 42 today, my prayer is that we would see the common, ordinary faith of the disciples and their ruthless trust in their Savior, the Spirit, and the sovereignty of God to not only protect and preserve them in their sufferings, but also to push them out on mission, not after the suffering and persecutions had ended, but in the very midst of them. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful this morning for the faithful witness of ordinary men and women throughout history, but especially recorded here in Acts and chronicled on through the ages of the church, those who faithfully endured suffering and persecution, loss of property, loss of family connections, loss of income, loss of jobs, loss of a homeland, and even loss of life. And so we gather today, not through any merit of our own, we gather because of the grace that we've known the grace that we've experienced, and we've experienced it because there were men and women before us who were willing to go where the gospel had not yet been proclaimed, who were willing to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel, who were spring from truth. It does not spring from true justice. And so what we see in the message of the gospel that the disciples take out into the city is this confrontation with and this engagement with people and a threatening posture, or not necessarily the disciples and the apostles having a threatening posture, but the posture of those who are in power feeling threatened by the message. And so not content to just have them jailed, they put them in public prison, where everyone would see and know that they had been rightly reprimanded. It was a means of punishment coupled with humiliation. However, the jailing is short-lived as that night an angel of the Lord opens the prison and ushers them to freedom. And in their freedom, they are not told to retreat, nor to recuse themselves from the mission. They are told to go straight back into the place where the conflict originated and continue to speak the words of life that is the words of Jesus and the message of the gospel. Think about this for a moment. Now, it would have to be a little bit jarring if you're an apostle. You begin to pick up on the rhythm of persecution that's finding its way into your life. You're following Jesus. You're announcing the good news of the kingdom. 
You're seeing miracles performed, people healed, even sometimes, as we looked at last week, by Peter's shadow simply falling on them and the faith they had in God in that moment. And yet you begin to feel the pinch and the pressure of persecution. And so perhaps when the apostles were freed that night, perhaps they thought that the call would be to go relax, go recover, go take a self-care day, go prop your feet up and drink some coffee and just read your Bible. But what the Spirit of God does is the Spirit of God says, no, 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 no. we got work to do, and you're going to go right back into where you were earlier today, where they found you, where they drug you out of, where they put you in prison for being there. You're going to go right back in, and you're going to do the same thing again tomorrow. Now, if we're honest, we would question maybe the wisdom in that. Why not lay low, let the storm clouds kind of pass, then we can get back after it. But the Spirit directs them to go straight back into the temple. What God knew, what the angel there on God's behalf knew, and what the apostles began to pick up on, if not by now, surely by now, was that they were engaged in anything less than a spiritual war. Straight back to the battlefield go the apostles. And to their credit, or at least what Luke records for us, there is no verbalized hesitation, there's no questioning of the safety of the call, there's no doubting the plan of God. There is a simple yet profound obedience that was a mixture of both the apostles' own experience of the truth of the gospel and the Spirit's empowering them to do what they were called to do. The truth of the matter for the apostles and for us is this. There is a way in which you can assume you're being persecuted because you're just being hard to get along with. There's a way in which you can feel like you're suffering because you don't know how to not be a jerk to people when you're talking about Jesus. We can go seek out as followers of Jesus conflict and then quickly run up the flag of persecution and suffering when we're the ones who engaged and initiated the conflict that led to the response that we would want to label persecution and suffering. The disciples didn't seek that out. The disciples didn't seek to get on the wrong side of the ruling class of the day. The disciples were just faithfully obedient to clearly communicate the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus had done. And if we're going to faithfully minister to Jesus, everything can't be suffering. Everything that we experience is not persecution. But there are things we experience because of our faithful witness to Jesus that is persecution and that is suffering. But we do not, withhold, we do not hold the right to go engage people in verbal conflict or in verbal confrontation and then claim that we're the ones being persecuted for our witness. In faithful gospel grace, with the truth spoken in love, we communicate the gospel. And if and when we face persecution and suffering for that, we see, as we'll see at the end, we gladly welcome it as a badge of honor and service to our King. But we don't go out antagonizing those who don't know Jesus to try to get them to pick a fight with us so that we could have some hero-martyr complex that we could display for the world to see. We're just patient, faithful, obedient witnesses to the gospel. That's what the disciples were doing, and now they're back in it again. And just like we've seen and just like we'll see, Faithful sharing of the gospel is both a recounting of your own experience with the gospel and a leaning on the Spirit's power at work in you to do what you've been called to do, which is be a faithful witness to the truth of the gospel and live an obedient life. 
the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, and the rest of the ruling class now had to contend with their own feelings of humiliation, now coupled with their jealousy, as they were unable to locate the prisoners. But it doesn't take long for someone to recognize that the apostles are right back out in the temple, defying their orders and continuing to teach in the name of Jesus. Even though they were strictly charged not to teach in Jesus' name, they cannot be found living in disobedience to God's call and command. When confronted, Peter gives them a brief summary of his Pentecost sermon. And even in the moment where perhaps silence is the best option, Peter speaks. And this time, unlike almost every other example we have of Peter in the Gospels, he gets it right. Peter's known throughout the Gospels for being the one who would speak first and think later. He's known for being the one who would put his idea of what the kingdom should look like ahead of Jesus' clearly stated plans for what the kingdom would look like and what his death would look like. And yet here in this moment, testifying to what he's seen and heard and known, and with the Spirit now filling him, Peter gets it right. The NIV Study Bible notes, far from shying away from the high priest's accusation in 528, Peter boldly accuses the leaders of killing God's Messiah. Now, that is a bold move, right? They've told you not to teach in his name. They've beaten you. They brought you in for questioning. You're clearly on the radar of those who would like for you to just hush and go away. And the minute you get before them, charged with continuing to do what they've asked you not to do, you go right back at them to clearly communicate that they were the ones responsible for killing God's Messiah. Hanging him on a cross alludes to Deuteronomy 21-23, where it says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. This passage originally in Deuteronomy referred to the shame of impalement on a stake without noble burial. But Christians came to see it, the NIV study Bible goes on to say, as evidence that Jesus became a curse for us by taking the penalty for our sins. And Paul expounds on that in Galatians 3, especially Galatians 3.13. So as we consider these first verses of the end of Acts chapter 5, we're confronted with this to wrestle with. Who is it that we will be obedient to? And at what point do we know the difference between the prudence of keeping quiet and the prudence of speaking? The wisdom of pushing a little bit further with the people that we're engaged with and the wisdom in backing off until the next time you can engage with them. One of the things that the disciples are modeling for us here is a deep reliance on the Spirit. This is not them doing, look, we read it and kind of the undercurrent in Luke's writing is that the, the disciples and the apostles were sensitive to the Spirit's leading in their life. That they were sensitive to the thought of maybe now's the time that I should just refrain from another engagement. They were sensitive to now the Spirit seems to be prompting me to open my mouth and speak again. If we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus, obedient in what God calls us to, we have to get over this kind of fear of the Spirit that most of us live with, like, what would the Holy Spirit have me do? And listen to and be attentive to a heart and a mind surrendered to God so that we would know the nudging of the Spirit in our heart and in our life for when to speak and when to keep silent, for when to push and when to back off. 
that we would avail ourselves of the Spirit's power at work in us to do what only the Spirit of God can do, which is change the hearts of non-believers through the faithful witness of those who have known the gospel. The Spirit and the Spirit alone has the power to save. Not your words, not your rhetoric, not your winsomeness, not your ability to lay out a systematic theology in under five minutes while you've got someone pinned on the elevator with you. It's the Spirit and the Spirit alone who saves. We would be wise as believers to go into conversations, to go into interactions with non-believers, praying that the Spirit would help guide us, that the Spirit would give us the words to say, that the Spirit would give us an understanding of when to keep quiet and when to keep speaking. We would do well to avail ourselves of the power that God has given us in the Spirit. But so much of what marks our attempts at obedience and evangelism comes from a white-knuckling effort of our own design and our own desires. What the apostles model for us is a patient, calm surrender. And they give us, in this initial interaction in 517 through 32, they give us one of the key sentences that would inform the church down through the ages and even now. Go back with me to 28. The high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, last sentence of verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. I wonder if we were to look back over the last week or month or even year of our life, how many of us shared the gospel out of an obedience to God, or how many of us refrained from sharing the gospel out of an obedience to man? How many of us have our lives marked by we must obey God rather than men? How many of us lives are marked, I would rather not run afoul of man even if it means slightly disobeying the command of God? Peter says we don't get the option. There is no way that I can somehow make you happy, Sanhedrin and Sadducees and ruling class, and also keep the commands and the directives of God. This is the question before us, not just for today, not just for the moments where we may be faced with making a decision for, will we confess Jesus if it means our life? We like to live with that in view and go, am I at a point where I would say yes to Jesus if it meant losing my life? I would just contend with you this morning. You will not be ready to answer that question in that moment unless you're willing to contend for and answer yes to Jesus in the small moments that would lead you to that point. Oftentimes it's less about the big moments where we're confronted with a life or death scenario where we must confess Jesus. And we're confronted with a thousand small scenarios of will we obey God rather than men. And how we speak to our spouses and how we speak to our kids. And what we put on our expense report. And when we say we got to work and when we say we left work. And the work we do in the classroom to pursue our degree. In all of these things, in all of these areas, we are left confronted with the idea of will we be obedient to God or to men. And the disciples help us answer that question. 
Luke goes on to record, starting in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. That's when you know you've touched a nerve, when people want to kill you. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And Gamaliel said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Gamaliel, as we'll read later, was the mentor of the apostle Paul. Paul mentions this himself in Acts 22, verse but in this moment in time where we have the council gathered together, Gamaliel is part of the minority party in the temple power structure. Nonetheless, he is well respected and has earned the right to be heard. And he offers a differing perspective than an immediate rush to the sentence of death that others would prefer. Gamaliel stands up and contends for leaving the disciples and the apostles alone. And he appeals to recent history. Recent uprisings and men who overestimated themselves as a means to pursue prudence with regards to the apostles, their message, and their miracles. Gamaliel says, look, we've kind of done this before. We've got some recent track records with men who have risen up, overestimated their abilities, and led to not only themselves but their followers either being killed or dispersed. So let's just kind of let this thing run its course. But here's what Gamaliel couldn't have known, and perhaps he knew maybe vaguely in what he was saying the Spirit perhaps was inspiring, but Gamaliel kind of offers this up. But here's the deal with Theodos and Judas and others in and around that time. Their entire mode of operation was not sacrificial love, but conquering through the sword. The key differentiator between everyone who would claim to be a Messiah from Rome's occupation up until this point is that they were content to take on Rome at Rome's own game. To build a band of sword-wielding zealots who would follow them into the teeth of sure destruction to try to alleviate the pressure of the boot of Rome at the neck of Israel. And at every point they failed. Gamaliel says, if this is what these guys are going to do, then we know how this ends. There's no ragtag group of people that are going to somehow amass a militia or an army that could crush the Roman imperial guard. So let's let them do their thing. Let's see where this ends. But what they didn't know, what they couldn't understand in the moment, was that the apostles were less convinced that taking up their sword was the right, right way to get the work done. And they were fully convinced, fully convinced, 
that the only way to make a difference in Jerusalem and in Rome was not to take up the sword, but to take up their cross. This formed the model of their engagement with the empire. You cannot beat the empire at its own game. The church can never beat the world at its own game. The church can never offer anything in and of itself that would be greater and better than what the world has to offer if we're playing on the world's terms. And so just like these apostles and disciples did not take up the sword to conquer Rome, but took up their cross, so it is that we cannot take up the weapons and the means of the world in order to offer them something better than what they already have. We have to take up the way of the cross ourselves. That we would not see the message of the gospel as dependent on our ability to conquer as the means by which it goes forward. We'd see the beauty and simplicity of the gospel being heard and being received, not through conquering, but through service. Not through bloodshed, but through bending low to wash the feet of our enemies. This is the counterintuitive nature of what the disciples are doing. It's what the ruling council couldn't understand, but what Gamaliel wants to give it a chance to run its course because if they're just the latest flash-in-the-pan revolutionaries, then the ruling council has nothing to fear. But Gamaliel shares at the end perhaps the most stunning statement of all. He says, So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. This truth that nothing can overthrow the plans and purposes of God is what we rest in as we contend for the faith in our culture today. We may face threats. We may face persecution. We may face suffering for our faith. But there is nothing that can hinder the work of God, and there is nothing or no one that can separate us from him, according to Paul's own testimony in Romans 8, 31 through 39. So let me just lay it out on the table for us. I don't know if you're aware, we are in an election year. I don't know if you had your head in the sand. feels like we're never not in an election year. It's just a different year, the same thing. Let me just offer this as a means to settle all of our hearts midway through January, before we ever get on down the road towards the election in November and everything else. We as the church have never been and will never be dependent on a political party being in power for the gospel to do what God has commissioned the gospel to do. We do not fret over who sits in power. We do not fret over who the ruling party of the day is. Because the ruling party of the day ultimately has no say over if and when and how the message of God and the mission of God is completed. That is God's prerogative and God's prerogative alone. So we don't fear an election. We don't fear the fact that we may lose the right together peacefully on a Sunday morning. We don't fear any of that because there's nothing that's written in Scripture that says the only way the gospel can go forward is if you're living in 21st century America. We don't fear any of it because nothing can stop God and nothing can separate us from him. So let the chips fall where they may. Let the elections go how they'll go. Let the story of America be written and finalized and commissioned to the dustbin of history because the only thing that endures forever is the kingdom of God and Jesus who sits on the throne. So we don't fear any of it in the same way the disciples didn't. 
There have been numerous governments and numerous leaders who believed that they would be the pallbearers of the death of Christianity, and yet the gospel marches on. And so we fear nothing. We just maintain humble, faithful obedience, just like the disciples. Because what is true is this. What we're involved in, what we're caught up in, the one we're following is not something from the idea or the heart of man. It is from God, accomplished by God. We're commissioned by God then to go out and share the gospel, and nothing is ever going to stop us. And in the clear presentation of the gospel, and in faithful obedience through acts of service and love to others, Anyone who would oppose that message delivered in grace and truth and modeled in acts of sacrificial love and service to those in the family and those outside the family of God, anyone who would oppose that is not just opposing us, they are opposing God. They've got a bigger issue on their hands than how they feel about us. And so we're free to love and to serve them. Unsure of what will come of the apostles' mission, but pretty sure it will end in their defeat, the authorities want to leave them with the taste of what will happen if they don't fall in line. Therefore, all 12 apostles are beaten and told once again not to speak in the name of Jesus. Seems as though the Sanhedrin thought this would quiet them down, but it has the exact opposite effect. Luke tells us that they leave the presence of the council, not downcast, not introspective regarding what has happened to them. The apostles leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy of suffering dishonor for the name of Jesus. And they rejoice in part because they realize in this moment that the persecution they are experiencing fulfills what Jesus himself said would be the mark of those who follow him. I want you to turn, if you've got it, or it'll be up on the screen. You can kind of hold your finger there in Acts 5. Turn over to John 15. We're in the midst of kind of the last big block of Jesus' teaching in John's gospel. They're together in the upper room. Jesus is on the verge in John 17, of offering his beautiful prayer for the high priestly prayer is what it's called, where he prays for the unity of believers and the realization of the truth of the gospel, and they're being sent out. But before we get to the high priestly prayer in 17, at the end of 15 and into the start of 16, Jesus says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. 
But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. If you want to see the exposition of John 15, 18 through 16, 4, go read Acts 5, 17 through 42. Almost verbatim what Jesus said would happen happens in this moment. They'll hate you because they've hated me. They don't know you because they don't know my father. You're not greater than me, so if you think you can follow me and not suffer, you've got another thing coming. The Spirit's going to bear witness about me, and you're going to bear witness about me because you've been with me from the beginning. But I want you to pick up on what Jesus says near the end of that section in John, six, in John 15 and 16. He says this. He gives all these reasons, all these things about what will happen. And then he says this. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. What Jesus knew was the frailty and fickleness of the human heart. That at a certain point, we kick into self-preservation over self-sacrifice. That we have these moments where we are content to withdraw rather than press forward, living on mission for what God has called us to. Jesus lays it out as clearly as he can. So you could not go back and charge Jesus and say, well, if you would have been more clear about what to expect, maybe I wouldn't have agreed to follow you. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Here it all is. I've not even been handed over yet. But you're going to watch this play out. Here is as clear as I can tell you what to expect if you follow me with the fullness of your life. And I'm telling you this because I know in the moment Jesus is saying, you're going to be tempted to walk away from it all. You're going to be tempted to abandon me. You're going to be tempted to think there's another way that you could somehow be faithful to me that would avoid suffering. He says, no, 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 no. This is what you can begin to expect if you're going to give your life to following me. They're going to put you out of the synagogue. And then whenever, then whenever whoever kills you will think they are offering a service to God, which is what they thought they were doing in the temple in this moment in Acts 5. The push for putting them to death is seen as an act of service to God, to quell the voice of those who would detract from or take away from the religious institution of the day. The Sanhedrin and the council think they're serving God in the death of the apostles. Jesus knew what was coming. He warned the disciples and the apostles then, and he warns us now to consider the cost, to ask ourselves realistically, will we follow and not fall away? But it also puts the ruling authorities, both then and down through the ages of the church, in quite the predicament. Because what do you do with people like this? What else is there left to hold over their heads that would slow them down? You had them on the brink of death. If Gamaliel's out sick that day, the disciples and the apostles could have faced death. But Gamaliel buys them time through God's providence, but then they're still beaten. And that's not like a spanking like we think about if you grew up in a house where you got a spanking. That ain't a spanking like your grandfather gave you. That ain't a spanking like your mom or dad. They weren't sent out to pick their switch off of the sycamore tree and bring it back in. This was a measured, controlled, brutal beating meant to, in the moment, silence and bring back in line those who had stepped out of line. And the indication we get is they were beaten and then not held. There was no immediate medical care provided to make sure they didn't die. 
the picture we should have in our minds of what's happening here. Don't sanitize what the disciples and the apostles are going through. They're not bandaged up, walking out like the temple authorities aren't wheeling them out to the, to the wagon on a first century wheelchair to make sure they get home okay. When you think about what's just happened, and then we read, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They're leaving with backs bloodied and broken open. They're leaving a trail of their own blood from the center of the temple where they've been tried and beaten. A trail of their own blood follows them out. And this is when we find them rejoicing that they were counted worthy of suffering for the name. It wasn't after it had healed. They didn't count themselves worthy. They didn't count their rejoicing and suffering for the name after the authorities were dead. In that moment, that's when they rejoice. And the challenge for us is, will we rejoice in God in the moments when the suffering for us is most acute? They didn't walk out going, God, if you're good, this will never happen again, and then I'll get about the business of praising you. They walked out with a full awareness that this is what they had signed up for. And I just don't think sometimes we wrestle with the reality of what this means that they rejoiced in that moment. That's a hard time to rejoice. The certainty of God's promises and the surety of his salvation and the anticipation of his return made a ragtag group of believers a nightmare for the empire and those who would oppose God and his plan. But this does not mean that suffering persecution for the sake of the name of Jesus isn't painful. They did not get a theoretical tongue lashing. It does not mean that the suffering, it doesn't mean that suffering persecution for the sake of the name of Jesus isn't costly. It doesn't mean that suffering persecution for the sake of the name of Jesus is just something that we invent in a psychosomatic way in our brains. Suffering for the name of Jesus is real. It is costly but what we do with it matters when we suffer persecution for the name of jesus we are called to locate our sufferings and our persecutions for the sake of jesus and the gospel inside the truth of god's character god's nearness to us and god's purposes you do not locate sufferings and persecutions for the gospel outside of god's character and his nearness to us and his purposes we don't try to work backwards from the suffering to understand God's character. We understand our suffering by locating it within the midst of God's character, that he's loving, that he's kind, that he's gracious, that he's good, and that he would use even our sufferings to advance the gospel. But at no point are we even more aware of the nearness of God to us than when we suffer. And so suffering isn't just a means by which we would think some masochistic God gets his licks in on those who would follow him. It's a means by which God displays, through not stopping every bit of persecution and suffering, the value and the worth of his son and the gospel by those who would be obediently faithful to the gospel and rejoice in him even when it's all coming, crashing down. And lastly, it means that our suffering isn't in vain because our suffering, when we locate it correctly, when we experience it and walk through it, and we can look back on it even, we begin to see that our suffering both advances the gospel and it sanctifies us.
If we only think of suffering for the sake of Jesus as a means by which the gospel is advanced, we'll lose sight of the secondary part of suffering, or the 1A part of suffering, which is our sanctification. Which is that oftentimes it is through persecutions and sufferings that we are sanctified, that we are made more like Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5, 1 through 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, Paul says, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice the key distinction Paul makes here. Suffering can and does produce its purpose because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Notice the bookends of Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul mentions the work of suffering in our life, and he closes with this. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The framework by which we understand suffering and its work to sanctify us is done with these two bookends or these two guardrails to keep us from veering off into wrong thoughts about God. Paul talks about suffering and its byproducts only after reminding us that we have been justified by faith and we have peace with God. And he closes the conversation about suffering by reminding us that our hope won't put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Therefore, we do not face suffering wondering if God loves us and God is for us. Rather, we are able to endure and bear up under suffering and persecution because we are convinced of God's love for us and trust his ability to bring endurance, character, and hope out of what we go through. And even more than that, having God's love poured out in our hearts serves as a reminder that God in love draws near to us in these moments. He is never a God who distances himself from us. We're going to faithfully follow through the sufferings and persecutions that come our way. We do so by realizing that suffering both advances the gospel and it sanctifies us. And I'll read you one quote about the work of suffering in sanctifying us before we close. Marshall Siegel writes the following concerning suffering, of which persecution is a part. Siegel writes, Part of the suffering of suffering is the creeping suspicion that we won't make it, that this will cost us more than we have to give, that tomorrow will be the last straw. We find hope at and beyond the end of ourselves, at the end of all we can do and say and feel, if we find God there. Suffering produces hope because it shows us, like nothing else can, that we can handle more than we think with God. Suffering demands endurance, allowing us to see what God can do when we come to the end of ourselves. Enduring hardship with God reveals what's happening inside of us as he conforms us degree by degree to the glory of his Son. As that happens, we get to see glimpses of the wonder of who we are in Christ. Through suffering then, we see that we are someone we never could have been without grace. So, instead of praying that God might preserve our hope through suffering, we might begin praying that God would build our hope through suffering. 
that this season of darkness actually might leave us nearer to and more confident in him, instead of merely praying that God would heal us and restore us to where we were, we can pray that he would use suffering to grow us and lead us forward to where he wants us to be. Suffering will change us. The question is whether it will change us for the better, driving us nearer to Jesus and making us more like him. By all means, when suffering comes, pray that God would give you what you need to receive it, to survive it, to endure it. But don't stop there. Ask him to make suffering a servant of your peace and hope and joy in him. Let's pray.